Good evening. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. John 15, 12 through 15 is our scripture reading for this evening. (coughs) Excuse me. John 15, 12 through 15, but we'll be looking at a, a number of other passages as well. John 15, 12 through 15 is is our scripture reading. This is God's word. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray, please. Father, we thank you for this time to be together again to open up scripture. And we do pray for all of our marriages and future marriages in this room. And we pray you would help us to have God-centered marriages and to love emotionally as the Lord Jesus did. And that we pray that our marriages would be a model of the very love that you, the triune God, has for your church And we pray that you'd bless us now to that end. In Christ's name, amen. Since sin entered the world long ago, I think the first man who ever said or thought, my wife doesn't understand me, was Adam. And the first woman who thought my husband doesn't understand me was Eve. We are emotional beings by God's design, although the negative emotions such as irritation, sadness, anger, etc., They weren't part of the original creation before the fall. Nevertheless, we're all emotional people designed by God in that way, and that's a good thing. Emotions, however, are often sinful. Often we work hard to suppress those emotions if they make us uncomfortable. Emotions can be dulled if we are not very close to people, but nothing will accent your emotions more comprehensively and bring them out more thoroughly than marriage. The good and the bad in our emotions will be seen in marriage. The greatest and most enjoyable feelings, the greatest and most enjoyable emotions, and the most painful emotions will be part of marriage. In order to maximize the good and to minimize the bad, we have to learn to communicate those emotions, and we need to learn to love emotionally. We have to love emotionally. And there are some men who are very good at talking about their feelings in general and at talking about their feelings with their wife. If you immediately tuned me out when I said that, it's because because you think it's effeminate or soft to be good at communicating your feelings or your emotions and you need to repent of your attitude about emotions and about feelings. Jesus, our Lord, had a very robust emotional life which he expressed in words and actions, including groaning and sighing, weeping, without hesitation, with no shame to his friends, his disciples, and even in front of his numerous enemies. Jesus felt and expressed compassion and pity, anger, sadness, anticipation, amazement, friendship, irritation, zeal, loss, love, One of his titles, as we've seen in Isaiah 53, one of his titles is the man of sorrows. 
He also had the anticipation of great joy after the cross was completed. Jesus was not stoic, nor was he soft or effeminate. He reacted in perfect holiness with great emotion to every circumstance that he faced. Expressing and giving words to those emotions is an important and unmistakable hallmark of the Gospels' record of his life. You can't read the Gospels and miss how emotional Jesus was. His life, his ministry, and teaching, they're they're punctuated with emotion. And one of the things in which Jesus differs from us is that his feelings, his emotions, were always based on facts. Real facts. Real things. Oftentimes, our feelings are based upon misperceptions on our part. They're based on miscommunication on our part. Or upon paranoia in our minds, etc. Sometimes our feelings are based on truth and reality too, but often they're not. We have to learn to manage our emotions and feelings in an honest and biblical and self-controlled way. For a lot of men who never learn to do this, despite the tough exterior that they may have learned to put forward, they're actually very unstable emotionally. Women, if you're married to a man who isn't very good at, at talking about how he feels, he might often express how he feels not in self-controlled words that communicate it well, but rather in occasional outbursts of anger. Galatians 5.20, 2 Corinthians 12.20 identify outbursts of anger and outbursts of wrath as works of the sinful nature. That's a real problem. That's a serious issue. Outbursts of emotion that are uncontrolled. They have to be replaced by the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. So, men, I want to tell myself and tell all of you, there are no strong silent types. There are no strong silent types. If you're silent and you're not skilled at expressing emotion in a Christ-glorifying, wife-edifying way, you're weak, not strong. The phrase strong silent type is a contradiction. Biblically speaking, there are weak silent types, and then there's strong, vocal, self-controlled types. So get rid of the strong silent type. He doesn't exist. Now the last but certainly not least fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is also one of the toughest. It's one of the ones we struggle the most to cultivate and that's self-control. Remember what we've covered in previous messages in this series on having a God-centered marriage. The goal of marriage in the life of a believer is to make us more like Christ. Those evil works of the sinful nature are replaced more and more by the fruits of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Even if outbursts of anger or frustration are all you've ever seen or all you've ever done, the sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit and his application to you of the Word of God will bear that fruit of self-control. You will make that progress in your life. That's the glorious part of Christian marriage. Whatever frustrations or heartaches a Christian married couple might experience today, if they're attending to the preaching of the Word of God on the Sabbath day together, if they are reading Scripture every day together, if they're praying as one every day together, those sinful sources of frustration will be replaced slowly but surely over time by the warm and safe place of affection that God intended marriage to be for men and for women. Never despair or give up, however you may struggle in your marriage. Our God is able to change us. And he's able to change the person we're married to by his 
word and spirit working through the means of grace in the church of Jesus Christ. So often it's, it's almost like even among some reformed married types, it's like we, we can get the answer right to the doctrine of sanctification. We just don't think God's going to do that with this person we're married to. But we should always be believing God's making this person better. A year from now, they'll be more godly. So will I. Don't ever think, I give up. I can't change. They can't change. Nonsense. Metanoia means to change your mind. Sanctification, to make progress in holiness. We change all the time, moving more and more towards Christ-likeness. And that's what marriage is all about, is helping one another to do that. Learning to love emotionally and to communicate your feelings is hugely important, not just to an enjoyable and intimate marriage, but to all human relationships. Think of this illustration with me. Newborns, when they're newly born, they only have two responses to the way they feel. Only two. Smiles or chuckles and crying. That's it. That's all they can do. And parents very often cannot tell. When they're crying, when they're fussing, when something's obviously wrong and they're yelling, they can't tell. Is it a dirty diaper cry? Is it an I'm hurt cry? I'm tired cry? Is it I'm in need of being held because I need to feel physical affection from you cry or what? Nor can they tell if the smiles and the chuckles are because they're excited to see you or they just experienced some kind of physical relief into their diaper. Parents can't tell either way what the real cause of the smiles or the cries are for one reason. What's the reason? They can't talk. Newborn can't explain this. Uh, my diaper needs to be changed. They, they can't tell you that. They can't tell you what the cause is. For many babies that grow up into children and then to adulthood, they still often can't really talk about or express their feelings very well. And this leads to problems in marital intimacy. Now, what is, what is intimacy? What does that mean? It means close familiarity or fellowship, nearness in friendship. Nearness in friendship. And your marriage, your marriage partner should be your best friend, your, the person you are closest to. Often in marriages, because of life circumstances, miscommunication, and or hurt feelings, husbands and wives will say to one another, and they say this to each other, you seem very distant. You ever been told that? You seem very distant. What do people mean when they say that? They mean the opposite of feeling close to you. And this is really the precise opposite of the beautiful expression, one flesh. Remember that from Genesis 2? A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. How can people who are in the sight of God, one flesh, be distant from one another? They can feel distant because they don't communicate well. Because of sin or infidelity in the marriage of some kind or another. And because they don't love emotionally. People fear exposure to one another. Remember Genesis 2.25, I'll read it again. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not just unclothed physically, but emotionally as well. They had no secrets. They communicated perfectly. They enjoyed both the physical relationship and their emotional closeness to one another. And there's a myth that we need to discard from our thinking, and that myth is that men don't need the same kind of emotional closeness that women do. I see no biblical warrant to think that way. Because God created men to be physically and emotionally stronger, they have a tendency to cover up emotional and physical hurt. Because expressing those sorts of things makes us feel less than men. Men want to be seen as strong, not weak in every way possible. 
But the need for emotional intimacy is just as much there in men as it is in women. And so husbands and husbands-to-be, if you become skilled at loving emotionally, everything about being married will be made much, much better. And we're going to get to this in just a moment here, so just keep a deep seat in the saddle here. Don't get me wrong, both men and women struggle to love emotionally, and they struggle not to hide their feelings and struggle often to express in words and actions those feelings. But because men tend to struggle a bit more with this, I'm directing a lot of this towards men. Men are to be the initiators, the leaders in these ways. Where this gets more complicated, more difficult, is when a husband or a wife has tried to love emotionally, and it has been used against them to hurt them. Often there is very deep hurt. It can be profoundly hard to overcome if this has been done, especially if it's been done for a long time. For many married couples, the enjoyment of emotional and physical intimacy needs to be reclaimed. And before we move into more biblical and practical things here, I want to encourage men with daughters to consider something. Men, we, we need to be able to express our emotions good and bad, in controlled words to those daughters. So we can show them, here is how a man shares his heart with you. Here's how a man in a self-controlled way can share his good and his bad feelings. In a self-controlled way. That's edifying and God-glorifying. If you do that well with your daughters, they won't be attracted to men who are unskilled in how they feel. Unskilled in how they love emotionally in a God-glorifying way. She'll be repelled by men like that. She won't marry a man who will not be good at loving her. If you and I are are good at loving our wife and good at loving our daughters and our sons also, loving them emotionally in a self-controlled and God-honoring way, generations of happiness and joy can follow from that. It really is incredible to think how much of what we do reverberates and affects future generations. It really is amazing. R.C. Sproul One of his hidden gems, one of his books that that is not as popular as it should be more popular, The Intimate Marriage. It's a wonderful treatment of the subject. In the chapter on communicating love, he wrote this, quote, Perhaps the question most frequently asked by a wife is, do you love me? Standard replies are often less than helpful. Answers like, of course, or I married you, didn't I? One, one sage maintained that a woman needs to be told she's loved in 365 different ways a year. And the truth of this hyperbole, however, is that women usually notice seemingly small expressions of affection. And so do men. Husbands must discover what makes their wife feel loved and vice versa. And then he shares a couple of really good illustrations. He says, we have a perennial crisis over lipstick. It seems as if all of my insecurities about my wife's affection for me are wrapped up in a small tube of lipstick. When I read this, I had no idea where he was going with this. I know that I've asked my wife 10,000 times to put on lipstick. Whenever I see her without lipstick, I take it as a personal insult. When the insults become so frustrating that I can't stand it any longer, I give vent to my exasperation by saying, when are you going to start wearing lipstick? And the normal reply is, when you start picking up your clothes. Another illustration. Then there's the washcloth issue. Some wives are neat, others are fussy, but mine is fastidious. It seems to me that she has a neurotic concern for neatness in detail. She thinks I have an uncontrollable passion for making messy what she has made neat. I say, how can I tell you I love you? She says, 
by not rolling up the washcloth in a ball when you're done with it and throwing it in the sink. How unromantic is that? It would be so much more exciting to demonstrate my affection by slaying a few dragons or even by making a birdie for her on the, do- on the golf course. Who wants to show love by hanging up washcloths? Yet, when I take the extra few seconds required to wring out the washcloth and hang it neatly on the towel rack, my wife has been told she is loved and told in a way that communicates it. I've let her know that I care about her labor and that I don't regard her task of housekeeping as insignificant, end quote. I've hammered this Bible verse because Lou Priolo's book, The Complete Husband, hammers it. First Peter 3, 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge, meaning you have to study her and study her and study her and make sure you understand how she needs you to love her, how she needs you to show her affection. Husbands and wives both need to be loved emotionally. They need to have love communicated to them emotionally and to give that love to one another emotionally. Now, if we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, then we need to look at how Jesus loved emotionally. We need to learn to love emotionally, to express our emotions in the ways that he did. And the thing is, Jesus was never married, but he loved emotionally. And isn't it interesting to you, the primary illustration that the entire Bible uses to describe God's relationship with the church is what? Marriage. Even the prophets, when they rebuked the people of Israel, accused them of adultery against God. Jesus put his feelings into very expressive and memorable words. It would be impossible to to read, let alone to comment, on every expression of emotion that we find in the Gospels, but it is staggering to look at. One group of emotions I want to take a quick look at. Mercy, pity, and compassion. Mercy, pity, and compassion. Those are all three related. When a leper approached Jesus and said to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean, Mark 1.41 says, Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him, and said, I am willing, be cleansed. When those two blind men, they heard a crowd coming and they heard that it was Jesus, they started crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, because they wanted to see. Matthew 20.34, So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately they received sight. When the widow's son at Nain, when they were coming out of the town to to bury her only son, laying dead in in the coffin, Jesus saw her and had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And then he raises the boy from the dead right there in the coffin and he sits up in the coffin. Mark 6.34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Mark 8, 2, I have compassion on the multitude. Matthew 9, 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Every person that Jesus was moved with compassion toward was very sinful. Very sinful, with no exceptions. Jesus' entire life, his mission, was a work of mercy and pity and compassion. Seeing the effects of sin all around him and broken relationships and diseases and losses and self-inflicted misery because of sin that people experienced, that moved Jesus to compassion on those very people who were, by their own sinfulness, responsible for all this stuff. We also see Jesus' ability to vocalize that compassion and to express it both in tender and gracious words 
and in actions. Nobody ever touched lepers. But he was so compassionate, he reached out and touched a leper and healed him. A man probably hadn't been touched by anybody in a very long time. This same mentality, this same emotion, pity, compassion, mercy, listen, it ought to characterize all of our marital interactions. All of them. When people say purposefully low or cutting, hurtful things in their marriage, they're the precise opposite. We are the opposite of what Jesus was towards his church. Jesus expressed and loved emotionally through sighs and, and tears and expressions of terrible grief. At the tomb of his friend Lazarus, remember we're told that Lazarus was someone that Jesus really loved. Remember how they described Lazarus? They told Jesus, he whom you love is dead. John was identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That doesn't, doesn't mean he didn't love Peter. It doesn't mean he didn't love the other disciples or that he doesn't love us. But is Jesus allowed to have a special person that he has the special love for like that? Of course. Of course. At Lazarus's tomb, we're told that Jesus wept in the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, And that term translated as weep there really indicates not just sorrow, but also anger. Jesus was angry. He was outraged by death. Remember, death is his enemy. Death is what he came to abolish. It's what he came to get rid of altogether by his cross work and his death and burial and resurrection. When Jesus sees Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, remember what he sees? What he sees in Jerusalem there and coming in on the donkey. And what does he do on his way into Jerusalem? He weeps over the city. He cried when he saw that city. When Jesus saw the man afflicted with dumbness and deafness, we're told in Mark 7:34, amazing passage. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed. Just overwhelmed a guy who's deaf and dumb can't hear can't speak and he just sighs seeing that you ever done that just sigh just something is grieves your heart so much you can't say anything you just sigh jesus did that and said to him be opened when jesus saw the hard-hearted unbelief of the pharisees we read in mark 8 12 he sighed deeply in his spirit he gave expression to those emotions. Seeing what he himself had decreed in the hearts of people who were doomed to suffer God's justice for their sins, even that broke his heart, and he sighed over it. Why did Jesus feel so much compassion for people? Think about this for a moment. Why did he feel compassion for people? Because he loved them. Love. While we normally think of the motivating force behind the incarnation, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ being his love for his elect people, and certainly it was motivated by that, and he loves his elect people, there's a passage of scripture where Jesus speaks even more basically about why he did everything he did. Listen, John 14, 31, he says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. What Jesus did, in the ultimate sense he did, because he loved his Father and always sought to obey his Father. Jesus endured the terrible cup of wrath and drank it dry and despised the shame of the cross, died in the place of his people, yes, because he loves us, but also because he loves his Father and always obeyed him perfectly and always did everything he asked him to do without fail every time. 
We bless God for the love that Jesus has for his dear children. And indeed, it's a love that is so great it can't be described. Paul even prayed that you would know the height and depth and width and length of the love of God that surpasses knowledge, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Ephesians 2 says, because of his great love with which he loved us. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus demonstrates his own love, however, for his Father in that he loves us, his sinful people. And dear brothers who are married or will one day be married, love your wife. Listen, love your wife as Christ loved the church because you love God first and foremost. That's the real motivation behind it. When you don't feel like doing it, you love because you love God. Because God has asked this of you. Yes, you love your wife, you love, you love your wife herself, but what motivates that love is our love for God. It's because we love God and have gratitude to Christ for all he suffered and endured to redeem us that we find strength to love with a love that covers a multitude of sins. To overlook a transgression. To love emotionally in the way that she needs us to love her to study her, and to change in all the ways that she needs us to change in order for her to feel loved by us, to persevere in godliness and faithfulness in the face of temptation to be unfaithful to her, to leave the past in the past and never bring up old transgressions against her, etc. Jesus loved his people to the bitter end because he loved his father. Married people, wives and husbands, wives to be, husbands to be. You will love your spouse because you love God. And God's will is that you love one another. Remember what Jesus said? He said it's so simple, so beautiful, so plain. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. How do you know if you really love someone? How do you know if you really love someone? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we really love him, we really love God, we'll obey him. There's a beautiful simplicity to it. If you love God... You can see it because you'll obey them. People can say that they love God all they want, but our actions, our obedience, or lack thereof, will, will tell the real story. You know, that's what James chapter 2 is all about. It's how professions of faith are justified. They're not justified by me telling you I'm a Christian. My profession of faith can only be justified by the way you see I live my life. There's a proverb that explains it perfectly. Proverbs 14, 2. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is perverse in his ways despises him. Notice, nothing about what they say. A person can say they love God, but they're perverse in their ways. What are they really showing? That they despise God. It's so simple. An upright person, a godly, obedient person who has integrity in their dealings with people, with money, who keeps their word, who doesn't lie, that person fears the Lord, plain and simple. But a person who's perverse in their ways hates God, despises God, says scripture. A person who lacks honor, who breaks their word, who breaks sacred vows that they have taken, doesn't have integrity, whose word means nothing. No matter what that person says, they despise God. He who is perverse in his ways despises them. So let's put the dime on the table. Ready? <laughs> Husband's love for God, his love for Christ, its intensity, its purity, its depth will be seen directly by how much he loves his wife. Is he characterized by loving emotionally, loving intentionally, as Jesus did? Loving her because she's a miracle of God's grace to him? If that man loves God, he will love his wife very, very strongly and very, very well. Always studying her. 
always working to keep that smile on her face, always building her up, always praying for her and with her, always asking her, how can I change to make you feel more loved by me? What else can I do so that you know how much you mean to me, how important you are to me? And the same applies to the wife. Her love for Jesus Christ will be seen in how she respects her husband, how she talks to him, talks about him, how she seeks not to hurt him or bring him down, but to help him, to bring out the best in him, to overlook faults and sins as much as possible, etc. If we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. Ephesians 5.33 Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Because a redeemed, married man really does love God, he will make it his mission in life to obey God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If he really loves God, he'll make it his mission in life to obey God. Obey that God that he adores by loving his own wife as himself. And the redeemed wife, because she really does love the one true God who chose her, redeemed her, died for her, and made her his own adopted daughter. She will make it her mission in life to obey the God that she adores, to show how much she loves him by keeping his commands, by doing what he says, and by respecting and loving and helping her husband. She'll give him every reason to safely trust in her. Remember that in Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband safely trusts her. Grace and love go together. They go together there in, in marriage. And intimacy and emotional love go together too. Loving emotionally goes together. The main illustration of Christ's love for the church and all of scripture, the one that's used over and over again, is marriage. And so our marriages have to be like that. If we, if we would love appropriately, we would love like Jesus did, love emotionally. It's a remarkable fact that a husband and wife coming together, having children, it's, it's described in the Old Testament by the Hebrew verb yada, to know. To know. Adam, we're told, knew his wife, and she conceived. And this obviously means a lot more than Adam recognized who she was. Like we might say, yeah, I know that guy, I met him a few months ago. But the sexual union in marriage, according to God's design, is knowing in every sense of that word. It's what makes marriage the source of the greatest earthly joys and the greatest earthly pains. Many people think that if anyone really knew us, they, they wouldn't like us. Many think if people really did understand us, they might like us. Many feel somewhere in between on those kinds of things. But everyone wants to be known, to be really known by someone. But there's always a fear that if people really do know us, they will not love us. Marriage is one way in which God intended us to have a greater assurance of his own love for us. Adam and Eve knew each other perfectly. And they were naked and unashamed physically and emotionally and personally for a time. We don't know how long until sin came into the picture. But sin makes that kind of closeness that they enjoyed before the fall a very, very difficult thing. But if married people learn how to love emotionally, and they don't hide from one another, and they love emotionally as Jesus did in a self-controlled and obedient way, that wonderful sense of companionship, friendship, and intimacy can be enjoyed by every Christian married couple. Listen, every Christian married couple, no matter what their pasts are like or how much they fail one another since they got married. To do this well, married people must have good communication. They need to develop the skill of expressing their emotions, thoughts, and feelings, likes and dislikes, and encouragements to one another. 
And make no mistake about it, it is a skill. It's a skill we have to work at, just like playing the piano or playing an instrument. You have to work at it. You've got to practice it to get better at loving emotionally. And if it's not something we're used to doing, you just have to keep doing it. You have to keep trying to do that. Never give up and never stop trying. If there's not that kind of joyful, wonderful closeness in your marriage relationship, you've got to try harder at this. You've got to talk to each other. Stop being like Adam and Eve and hiding behind the trees. Here comes God, every man for himself. I'll hide over, over there, you hide over there, and we're not even hanging out anymore together. You've got to come out from behind the trees and expose yourself to one another. You've got to be naked and unashamed. Marriage is supposed to be the place where it's safe to do that. Now, in closing this evening, I want to recommend to your reading what I think is probably the single most neglected book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. If you really want to know how to love emotionally, you want to know how to love emotionally, how to express the depth of emotion in your love for your spouse, then read and reread the Song of Solomon over and over again. This whole past week, every morning, I was cleaning up, straightening up the, the kitchen, put on my earbuds and listened to the Song of Solomon over and over and over again. And I just laughed repeatedly, wondering, does anybody actually talk like this to each other in marriage? <laughs> the entire book is a conversation between a husband and a wife. A husband compliments and showers expressions of love on her. He compliments her beauty. He expresses his heart. He's the initiator, and then she follows him. And I'm very thankful that this wonderful book, it doesn't get into the salacious details of marital love, but it models the way in which a husband and wife are to love one another. And it's deeply emotional. It's God's will that there be excitement in your marriage. It's God's will that you enjoy one another, rejoice in each other, build each other up, compliment one another. Speak words that, that build and edify. Show kindness. Be gracious. Overlook a transgression. Have compassion. Have pity. Express the depths of your love and your desire for one another. I had a dear Christian friend in college who he got married very shortly after I got married, and he told me about something that he did once a year that I thought was just awesome. And I'm not going to use her real name, but my friend told me he called it. It was an annual celebration in his house called Celebrate Cindy Deca Week. And I said, what is a Deca Week? He said, it's a week that's ten days long because seven isn't long enough. I was like, really? You celebrate her for ten straight days? Yeah, and I celebrate something else I love about her each one of those days. I said, well, okay, what, what do you celebrate? He said, last time, day one, I celebrated her femininity. The second day, I celebrated the way she does her hair that accents her beautiful eyes. The next day, I celebrated her beautiful smile. The next day, I celebrated the food she cooks for me. The next day, I celebrated the sound of her laughter. The next day, I celebrated the perfume that she wears, and on and on. And I thought, wow, this guy seriously gets it. He gets it. Every guy in here is thinking, are you serious? <laughs> I'm not. It was Celebrate Cindy Deca Week. It was an annual household festival. And to show you, I'm not kidding, the Song of Solomon is far worse than that. I'm just going to read. I, I randomly picked, just opened the Song of Solomon, put my finger down. Here you go. Here's 16 verses. Ready? This is a husband talking to his wife. Behold, you are fair, my love, 
Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of, uh, the top of Amana, from the top of Senir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. I ask you a question. Does the man who talks like that to his wife, does he see her as a miracle? Does he see her as a great gift of God's grace, like we talked about in the first message? Does he see her as God loving him and entrusting him with a sacred jewel? Does he see her as a cherished, celebrated, most wonderful gift of God that he would always speak with the utmost gentleness towards? Absolutely he does. She's a miracle to him. Is this concept of loving emotionally biblical? Go home and read the Song of Solomon. There's no way you can read it and think anything other than that. Marriage is the place where free expressions like this ought to be commonplace. But for so many Christian married people, it's like they're still hiding behind the trees in the Garden of Eden, afraid the other is going to really see them and really know them. Let it not be so, dear congregation. Men, we have to learn to express how we feel in self-controlled, Christ-like words and actions. If marriage is to make us more like Christ, we must express our emotions, our friendship, our love for our wife in the same ways that Jesus expressed his love for his church, in the ways that the husband in the Song of Solomon expresses his love for his wife. And with God's help, we can all have that wonderful, enjoyable marriage relationship that is a testimony to our, the people in our own house that Christ lives in us. And boy, I'll tell you, the darkness of our culture today and everything that you see going on in our culture today, what a testimony that would be to the world around us if we loved each other in our marriages that way in the church. Let's close in prayer. Father, we all want to do better who are married in our marriage relationships to love in this way to have that kind of passion, to love emotionally, to be excited about that wonderful gift of marriage. And Lord, we know there's, there's the ideal and then there's reality. There's, there's the things that, are, that we struggle with. There's the heartache and there's the disappointments. And we pray that you'd help us to have mercy, to have compassion, to have patience with one another in marriage. And I pray that for everyone here who is married, all who one day will be married, that you would give us a biblical vision of what it is to love emotionally. To remember Jesus loved with perfect emotions. We, we love with flawed and sinful emotions. But we are always to emulate him. Not to be afraid to express our heart. Not to be 
afraid to express our feelings and to share how we feel in our marriage relationship. And we pray that if there are walls in place, if there are barriers between husband and wife in our church here and Christian marriages here, that those walls would be torn down and that we'd be unashamed and that we would truly know one another and that we would love one another with the deepest of Christ-like emotion. We ask in Jesus' name.